Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Rachel Dory. Rachel, what's going on? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to finally have you on. Um, you know, for various reasons over the past year or, or two, I haven't been able to get you on the show yet, and we've talked about doing this. And now that um, you're at a different stage of your career, hopefully we can finally have this conversation and, uh, and get around to doing it. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think it was probably at least over a year we connected and started talking about doing this. So yep. now that we finally get to have this podcast, it's it's exciting. Well, give the listeners um, a brief rundown of, um, you know, I guess your your various job titles over the years or what you've been up to. Because, uh, yeah, listeners do always get on my case for skimming past that and just assuming that everyone knows everyone in this uh, little hockey community we have going on so if anyone doesn't uh, know you or isn't familiar with your work in the past um give them a brief rundown and we're going to get into it um so essentially i just spent the last year and a bit with the new jersey devils as their analyst of player information and video so that's essentially um taking all the video and information that comes into the organization and filling the needs of the different parts of the hockey operations department. So whether it be um, the coaching staff that has needs or any reports that they need versus uh, the scouting staff, amateur or pro, sort of handling their needs, whether it be video or different projects statistically. Um, So that's sort of what I've been doing for the past year and a bit. Um, Prior to that, I had a short stint at The Athletic, which is actually how I got the job in New Jersey. Right. Um, but I went to school sort of for sports business and my first gig actually was working for the Sudbury Wolves as their video coach. And that's sort of how I got into video was, um, being their video coach and, uh, handling different needs for the, the coaching staff, uh, from that perspective. So it kind of just grew from there, um, through university. I was also doing some analytics with the hockey team at Nipissing University up in North Bay, um, 
so it was, it's been really fluid. Um, and now I'm actually finally getting my first break since, since forever, actually, because I didn't take any time off school right. after high school or university. So it's good. I'm going to have a bit of a break here. What are you doing? I mean, you should be doing something more glamorous, you know, sitting on a beach or something. Instead, you're, uh, you're, you're wasting your time coming on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I took a bit of a break. I For the first probably, I would say, week and a bit, I didn't watch a single hockey game, and it was <laughs> really refreshing. And I'm, I'm actually going to Germany in February to uh, spend some time with family, so I doubt I'll be watching much hockey while I'm over there. Just a lot of my other passion, which is soccer. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I feel like that like cleansing on the palate is really important, unfortunately, just because of my job. I don't really get a chance to do so during the season. Um, but yeah, in the summer especially, I mean, it's pretty easy, especially around August when it feels like the hockey world kind of collectively agrees not to do anything. Um, it I like to kind of unplug and, and just not think about hockey for a week because especially doing like when you're in the in the midst of it throughout the regular season i mean it really can be such a such a grind and marathon and and not that i'm complaining it's the best job in the world but yeah it's uh you know sometimes you can get kind of you can lose the forest for the trees just because you're so deep into it and taking a step back like that is probably ultimately a, a good thing in the long run oh absolutely like it's just um it's necessary, quite honestly. I mean, hockey's become such a 12-month sport, even in minor hockey, which is insane in my opinion. Um, people just need to learn. Like, You need to take a break, and quite honestly, unless you're the GM or the assistant GM of a team, or maybe even a head coach, but even they take a break at least, um, you should be able to shut her down for probably like at least two weeks, sort of in the summer. I know teams operate differently, but... There is nothing that you're doing um, after prospect camp or development camp and before sort of late August that's really that important unless you're pulling off like a huge trade, Um, which is obviously a a little bit different. But I think the whole shutting down thing, if you don't have time to shut down, you're not rejuvenated for the season. And then that's sort of how hockey eats people up is that (laughs) you don't get yeah you become very cynical and jaded and lose sight of the fact that it's uh you know we're ultimately kind of talking and evaluating a game and it's uh it's pretty sweet um so on today's show we're gonna we're gonna talk about your time with the devils and we're gonna bounce around and and do a bunch of different topics but i thought that uh, a good starting point for us would be to discuss the recent trade between the carolina hurricanes and minnesota wild because i haven't had a chance to do a show since the news broke of that and i mean in the grand scheme of things it's not necessarily um you know, uh, a monumental trade by any means that shifts the landscape of the NHL. But, you know, especially with a guy like Nino Niederreiter, he's a pretty big name and he's done some uh, good things in the NHL. And I think we're at this point of the season so starved for players' transaction news like that. And we're gearing up towards trade deadline season, which is probably the most fun part of the year. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to kind of discuss that trade and, and sort of evaluate it from both perspectives and see if it is as lopsided as it seemed like it was on, on the surface when it first broke. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely not um, like a Taylor Hall for Adam Larson or a Subban for Weber type of altering trade. But I think on its surface, um, both players could actually be very good fits for their new teams based on how they play. Mm. Um, Particularly Nino, just because um, he has good like uh, shot relative metrics for a Minnesota team that plays very defensively 
And that fits right into how Carolina focuses on their shot and chance generation. So I think the fact that Nino sort of was a leader in shot generation and scoring chances with Minnesota will make him just a a glove type fit in Carolina because that's exactly the type of style that they like to play. Um, And then you have Victor Rask, who I would say like his skating isn't as bad as it is made out to be, but it certainly isn't. Wow. What a glowing endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not as, it's not as bad as it's made out to be, but it's certainly not top line sort of, um, echelon in today's game but i think under the boudreaux sort of minnesota system he will actually um be better than his stats in carolina were um just because i think he'll fit that system may perhaps a little bit better because i mean let's face it like minnesota is not exactly the fastest team but they do have a system that allows them to play very structured defensively and i think rask is one of those players that um while he doesn't necessarily have the speed um He's very smart, and I think that'll fit really well with what Minnesota sort of does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting because you mentioned the uh, some of the other one-for-one trades we've seen in the past, and um, it's obviously not of that caliber. I think it's closer to the Jordan Eberle for Ryan Strom trade. I think that Rask at this point of his career still has um, you know, more of a realistic opportunity of actually providing some positive value than, than Ryan Strom does at, a, at this stage of his career. But it feels like from Minnesota's perspective, um, they wanted to ultimately save a bit of money. And I think they save about a million and, 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 and some change um, per season over the next three years on the cap and they get a center. And I understand that was probably kind of the rationale from it, from their perspective. And obviously with Nino's declining offensive numbers, the past couple of years, they felt like, it wouldn't be too much of a drop off or maybe they felt like, you know, they were trying to salvage some value while they still could. It just, I mean, for, for me, when I look at this trade and I look at Nino Niederreiter's sort of trajectory for his career, like what are the odds realistically that a 26 year old suddenly forgot how to play hockey? And that's ultimately what I keep coming back to. And then you look at some of the percentages and sort of what's causing that decline in offensive numbers. And I certainly think he's not, um, Without blame, I think he hasn't played as well as he did during that breakout season in 2016-17 when he scored 25 goals and had nearly 60 points. But it does feel like there's a lot of um, sort of percentage fluctuation here. Particularly, I think he fell out of favor a bit because you look, and, and I know NHL teams still are looking at plus-minus for some reason, and, and he's a minus 11 this year for Minnesota compared to the plus big whatever he was, double digits in the years past. And I think part of that is why he fell out of favor and why people are viewing his season as such a disappointment. And then you look a bit closer and all of a sudden you see like, oh, whenever he's been out on the ice, the combination of Dubik and Stalock hasn't been able to make a save. And I don't think that's that's clearly not something that's been a, tr- a trend of his over the, his career. So it feels like that's more of a 40-50 game aberration than anything. And so the, what I keep coming back to for this trade is I feel like Minnesota made that kind of cardinal sin mistake of selling Nino Niederreiter when he was at his lowest value just because of that depreciated on a save percentage. And, and I hate when teams operate that way because... I mean, it seems kind of cold to talk about players as assets, and uh, I understand there's a human element to it, but ultimately, if you're running a team, you sometimes do need to view them as assets and view this as a business, and it feels like they kind of uh, misread the situation and sold low when, you know, I don't think, especially like a year or two ago, if you were saying, what can we get for Nita Rider, it feels like it could have been a lot more. 
Yeah, like I would say, I mean, it's small sample size because Raska's only played, I think, 26 games this year because he somehow like chopped off his finger. Right. Um, but if you look at the numbers, and I saw the chart, um, the Evolving Wild chart, ironically, and I think it's like this season, Nino is uh, plus two in even strength um, games above replacement and or goals above replacement. Sorry, and um, Rask is minus three and a half. Like that's a pretty big discrepancy. Right. Um, and I also think with Nino, he he's not as good as the sixty point player he was in his breakout season, but he also isn't as bad. I think if if given the proper opportunity, which I think he will get in Carolina, where he'll he'll be a good power play option, and this gives them two maybe two and a half solid lines with Aho and Teravainen and the young Shvechnikov. He's probably a 40 to 45 point player. And that's not bad. Like you can definitely have that kind of player on your team. And the fact that he moves the puck really well and he plays with speed bodes perfectly for somebody like Sebastian Aho or um, Lucas Walmark and especially Andre Shvechnikov, which is a player that's going to be really key for Carolina down the stretch. So I think this move was more for Carolina, not just a change of scenery for Victor Rask, but it was more about injecting perhaps another player who can play with their mentality of speed, get the puck to the net, create scoring chances, um, and that kind of philosophy. I think Nino fits well there and, I mean, selling low is is never a good idea. Um, you look what Edmonton did with Eberly and sort of the trade tree that ended right. up with Ryan Spooner on waivers today. Um, you never, it's never good to sell low. But I think at least Minnesota gets a player that um, will be serviceable in a three center type of role. And if there's injuries, he could he could play at the on the second line. So it's not as bad, sort of, as I think it was made out to be. Yeah, I mean, they got a functional NHLer back, at least, in return. But, no, I, I, I like this from Carolina's perspective, obviously. I think, you know, points aside and, and offensive production aside, Niederreiter has shown over his career that he's one of the few wingers that can sort of discernibly or tangibly um, – you know, drive possession, especially defensively for his team. And even this year during his offensive struggles, he's still been a, a positive shot share player on, on Minnesota. And he's going to fit like a glove, as you mentioned, on that Carolina team. And it feels like they're going to probably generate just an absurd amount of shots if they haven't been already. And we've seen so far, you know, he's only played the two games with Carolina, but he's looked mighty good next to Sebastian Ajo. And he's got the two goals against Edmonton and, and seven shots on net. And, and so it feels like he is really going to be a perfect fit there. And, and I think that, you know, expecting him to kind of bounce back and look a lot better than he looked in this first half of the season seems like a good bet. And I imagine that's exactly what Carolina and their analytics staff led by Eric Tulski were probably looking for and targeting. And I don't know, like when I, I when this trade happened, I did look at that and I, I at the PDO and I understand people's reservations with it and the flaws and you sort of should look at the on-ice shooting percentage and save percentage individually and not lump them together. But when stuff like this happens and when guys just fall out of favor or when the perception of players changes or the narrative becomes that they're struggling, it's still crazy in 2019 how often we come back to the idea of it's probably just because they've been a bit unlucky and things are going to turn around. Like as much as we've gotten smarter collectively and, and sort of acknowledging this stuff and the importance of it, it feels like a lot of mainstream media members and even teams and, and coaches still get fooled by this stuff and place a bit too much stock in it. And, you know, later you and I are going to talk about market inefficiencies and play, places you can kind of exploit stuff in the trade market. And somehow this is, this is still one of them. 
Well, it's interesting because this is absolutely a market inefficiency is, is being able to buy low on players. Um, not to mention the fact that, that this is still the whole using archaic stats is still very prevalent. I, I had my friend who I'm, I'm sort of trying to teach hockey to because this person never, she didn't come from a hockey family. So she's learned everything she knows from hockey from basically talking to me and, um, on Twitter and watching Sportsnet. Well, when you have broadcasts that are mentioning combined plus minus, <laughs> that's a big problem. And then I can pr- say that I have heard uh, more than a few of the hockey men use combined plus minus as a stat. And I, you just had to shake your head because there's just so many more telling stats that clearly a staff led by Eric Tulski is using and that the team is listening to. that when you as one team are, are looking at plus minus as your tell all stat, that's a relatively large issue, especially given sort of what we have. And this even comes back to um, what's going on in Toronto right now with William Nylander is yeah, is he's not going to shoot 2% forever. He's going to have a regression to the mean. And I think a lot of people sort of forget that that's how things work is sometimes there's, a cold slumper sometimes your shots aren't going in but that's not the time to trade a player yeah i mean it's obviously easier said than done for us when we're kind of looking at this from afar and we don't have anything any stake in it or or any emotional attachment to it and you can just sort of go like okay let's kind of cool our heads prevail this will eventually turn around but obviously if you're the player if you're the team and you're watching this guy constantly have nothing to show for being out on the ice i imagine it can be pretty um irritating or or, or make it make that kind of uh make you itch to make some sort of a trade because you're all of a sudden starting to feel desperate but yeah sometimes uh you know just looking at this stuff a bit more cautiously and and accounting for fluctuations in those percentages can go a long way towards uh you know preventing big mistakes that you ultimately can't get back so i don't know i don't think there's anything else particularly on this trade i think you know a lot of the analysis has already come out so far and it's been a handful of days and we've soaked it up and it feels like this is a win for Carolina and we'll see how it plays out. But I did want to talk a bit about the Oilers as well with you because uh, you and I have been messaging back and forth. And, and today, especially we're recording this on Monday evening uh, with Ryan Spooner going on waivers and then the Miko Koskinen contract extension. Um, it feels like the hits just, you know, don't stop coming. And, and who knows by the time this podcast is posted, maybe they'll even uh, have relieved Peter Shirley of his duties. But uh, yeah, it's uh it's a never, seemingly never-ending circus in Edmonton with head-scratching moves and questionable decisions. Um, so what's interesting is I actually have a very good relationship with the New Jersey goaltending coach, Willie Melanson, mm-hmm. and the goaltending development coach, Scott Clemenson. Like, I did pretty much every project they had, I, I did for them. So we have a very good relationship. And the one thing that I really came out of that with um, is goalies don't tend to get better in their 30s. Um, and obviously with what's going on in New Jersey right now with Corey Schneider, I mean, it's been well documented from every single angle. Um, it's very difficult to see why you would think that Koskinen needs a $4.5 million AAV. Now I understand he's played very well, and, and he has. He's been great, but... Does this not really remind you of the Scott Darling contract and the fact that Darling had one really, really good season and then he was signed to this contract for relatively similar money? 
um, and you just didn't have a big enough sample size to see sort of where it was going to go. And obviously, I, I hope that it ends up turning out for Edmonton a little bit better than Scott Darling has, but you can't help but draw the comparison. I think it's an even riskier bet, to be honest. I mean, I think you're overselling slightly how good Koskinen's been. I know he got off to a really hot start, and, and particularly in November, he was amazing, and he was sort of single-handedly uh, keeping Edmonton afloat, especially during that coaching transition. But I believe since the end of November, so he's played like 16 games or so in, in December and January, he's kind of reverted back to being a, a 900 goalie. He's got a 9-11 save percentage for the year, which is still slightly above average, but... I think ultimately that's sort of what he is, where he's kind of hovering around a league average guy. I mean, he's 0.44 goals saved above average for the year. Like, it seems like you can find goalies like this, and I'm not trying to um, devalue what he's meant to Edmonton or how important he's been, especially with Camp Talbot's vast vast and and fully documented struggles this year. But you're right. I mean, he's going to be turning 31 by the time this contract extension kicks in. And right now he's got 28 career NHL starts, and four of them came like a decade ago. So... It seems like a pretty ambitious uh, bet for them to take, especially with... It just, I mean, obviously he would have been an intriguing uh, candidate in the in the trade rental market as well, and they Absolutely. possibly could have got assets there, but it, I, some of the pushback that I've gotten when I was tweeting about this was, well, this is sort of the price of doing business, and this is, you know, <laughs> there you have to prevent you're trying to get ahead of the curve and not let a guy hit the open market because then other teams can create a bidding war. It's like, okay, ultimately if someone wants to pay Mikko Koskinen more than $4.5 million per season, you just, you thank him for his service. You give him a, a sturdy handshake and you, uh, you let him walk out the door and that's just the way it is. And it seems like a very questionable bet. Like ultimately the three year deal isn't the end of the world. We've seen some disastrous goalie contracts that run way into the late thirties and that's not going to be the case here, but Right. It just seems like an unnecessary risk for them to take. Like, I'm not sure what the upside is. I guess if he turns into an above-average starting goalie, then it looks like a good deal. But at that price, it's not even like that big of a home run if that happens. And the likelihood of that happening seems pretty minimal at this point. So I did some, some thinking. Um, apart from looking at his stats, I would say that Grubauer probably has a better track record. Um, yeah. Anti Ranta definitely has a better track record so if i'm edmonton and they clearly don't think the same way that i guess hockey twitter does i i look at anti-ranta stats and i go i'm sorry but i am not paying you anywhere near as much as anti-ranta because he's clearly established himself as a number one obviously when he's not hurt right and we, we can't be paying you in the same neighborhood but the one thing about the koskinen deal is it wouldn't shock me to see edmonton take spencer knight in this draft and goalies need about three and a half ish years to develop. And that sort of lines up with the Koskinen contract. So maybe if that's sort of the line that they're thinking is we're going to take a goalie in the draft this year, perhaps a Spencer Knight who by all accounts is sort of Andre Vasilevsky light. Hmm. Um, That makes a little bit of sense, but I, I, just don't see the need for four and a half million dollars. The term is fine, especially if that's sort of your plan is to develop either Olivier Rodrigue or um, a goalie that you draft this year, perhaps Spencer Knight. The term makes sense, but I just don't see 
why you need to sign a goaltender to four and a half million dollars when you've got Lucic on the books, you've got Russell on the books, you've got Sakara on the books, and then you have your McDavid and your Drysidle sort of thing. So I just don't see why you need to be spending that amount of money. Yeah, I felt like they were kind of bidding against themselves here, and I just yeah, I'm not sure what the market in free agency. I mean, obviously there's still half a season to go, and if he accrues more quality starts in that period of time. Maybe uh, the narrative will change a little bit, but yeah, it seems like a kind of 4D chess for them to be like trying to map things out that far ahead and being like, okay, we're trying to bridge this gap for three years here. And then this drug goalie, we're going to eventually maybe possibly draft will turn out to be our goalie of our future. Like, I don't know. It just, it seems like a comedy of errors and that, you know, you know, leads into the issue of what's going on right now with their met with their front office and their management where it's like, you know, it feels like we're really somehow we haven't reached this point yet, but it feels like we're rapidly approaching this uh, kind of point, no no return or boiling point where things are just going to come so untenable. The Doilers are eventually going to have to replace their general manager and let Peter Shirley go and go somewhere else. And if that's the case and it feels like it is, then why are you letting that GM who's ultimately a sitting duck GM make these sorts of long term decisions and trying to map out what your team's going to look like three or four years from now when he's probably not going to be around himself. So that kind of gets into this kind of like conflict of interest issue where when a GM's fighting for his life and trying to get into the playoffs, um, I find it hard to believe that he's also balancing the best long-term interest of the franchise in mind with some of these moves and we're seeing that take place and and i think that's the frustrating part especially when you're looking at Connor mcdavis trajectory and acknowledging that even though they've already wasted a couple good years here there's still a long uh shelf life of his peak years to come and you want to maximize them as opposed to just strapping yourself with these contracts that kind of keep pushing the ball forward but not ultimately getting you anywhere yeah and i think um one of the one of the issues that maybe doesn't get enough attention is when your owner is a a giant fan. Hmm. Yes, that's good. You want the owner to be a fan, but you also don't. Ultimately, he pays the money, but you you don't want him making the decisions around player personnel other than, yes, no, I am not signing, I am not paying this, or I am going to pay this, or I'm willing to pay this. Like, I don't think it's, necessarily a good idea to have ownership that involved and speaking from experience it's it's better when ownership kind of trusts the person that they have in place and doesn't try and get actively involved right i understand why daryl cates would want to be involved given sort of the track record and and things but when you think about it he put him in place so you can't put someone in place if you don't trust them so i think that is an issue, and it came out with a story with Yakupov versus Murray. Um, and I'm sure that he's had his fair share of involvement, and he owns a team, so that's fine. But I think he deserves his fair share of blame for sort of what's going on um, in Edmonton with regard to the hirings and um, the forcing of deals. Like, I, I don't think that... Peter Shirelli signs Lucic to that contract or Russell to that contract without cases either pushing or stamp of approval. Like oh, I, I 100%. Yeah, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum, but obviously it's, uh, I mean, it's fun to blame Peter Shirelli for all. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I, mean, I love the new cap friendly uh, feature where you can go and look at every single GM's trade in their career. And um, somebody sent me the a few of 
the G- former and current GM's track records, and it's pretty fun to compare, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, this trade tree going from Eberle to Strom to Spooner to putting Spooner on waivers and um, still paying a, a hefty chunk of that salary just to... I mean, I guess the rationale behind it, and I remember the year they did trade Eberle, he struggled in that postseason, the one year they did make the playoffs, and he was also just having a really down season in terms of shooting percentage, and last year he uh, conveniently enough bounced back to his career norms in his first year with the Islanders, and a lot of the kind of rationale behind it from the Oilers was we're trying to get ahead of the curve and save a bit of money anywhere we can so that we can sign some contracts and bring in other guys to help McDavid, and then you just look at how they've actually proportion that money that they've saved and what they've used it on and it's just i mean it really is just this endless cycle of uh just well, bad decisions th- yeah one of the things that's interesting is when you look at the spooner strom deal um let's say they wanted they would have honestly probably been better off buying out strom as opposed to making that trade because strom falls under 26 and spooner's above 26 so i believe 26 is the line for the one-third, two-third buyout clause. So if they would have bought out Strom, they only would have had to pay one-third of his contract, which, considering they make even money, you're either paying one-third of Strom's contract, or now if they buy out Spooner, they're going to have to pay him two-thirds because Spooner's already 26, I think. So so now you're paying double against your cap. Like The whole thing could have been completely alleviated if you really decided that Strom wasn't a valuable asset, then you just buy him out. And I think his equates to $500,000 against the cap, whereas to Spooners will be double that. I think, yeah, I think even more. Well, I think what they would tell you is that, um, you know, they made that trade and then Ken Hitchcock came in as the coach and Brian Spooner's not a Ken Hitchcock type of player. And so there wasn't a fit there. And so how could they have possibly known? But then that kind of brings us back to this idea where it's like, there's no foresight behind any of these moves. There's no planning. There's no uh, cohesion. It just seems like they're just making all of these moves in a vacuum and just going like, we did, okay, we did this one thing. Now we're going to do something else, even though it go, runs counter completely counterintuitive to what we did. It makes no sense with our trajectory. And then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. And that's quite possibly the worst place, worst way to run a team. And I've talked about this time and time again in the PDO cast, but the best franchises, and the best organizations in any sport are the ones where you have top down communication, everyone pushing, pushing and pulling in the same direction, yes. that cohesion with everyone kind of having like, it's perfectly fine for not everyone in the organization to agree on certain players or certain moves. And, and I think that's ultimately good. You don't want a bunch of yes, men. You want, intellectual discussion and you want pushback and you want people to really make you think critically about certain things but at the same time when you're so fundamentally all over the place like this and you're not trying to figure out who's making the decisions whether it's ownership whether it's management whether it's the coach and and what's going on like that's really where you get into trouble and that's ultimately what we keep coming back to with this Oilers team I mean you just look at all the decisions and everyone that's been coaching there and everyone that's running the team. And I guess the common denominator is the ownership, but it's just, it's such a mess. And I really do. It, it gets frustrating after a certain point because Connor McDavid is so freaking good right now that I want to yep. see that, you know, put to the forefront. And rather than talking about how great he is, instead we're talking about this entire mess that's around him. Well, you, you bring up a good point in terms of um, pulling in the same direction. And I think what gets lost is there's a difference between pulling in the same direction and being a yes man. Yeah. Because you have a common goal that is more than likely set out by the GM and it's his vision and you have your coach's vision. Okay. I want to coach this type of team 
and I want to have this type of culture. And you have your GM that has his vision for that. But if your GM brings up a trade, and this has happened many a times, I would think, that you either don't think is a good trade because it either just is not a good management of assets or it might not fit the way he thinks it'll fit, you have to speak up. You can't say, yes, man, just because he's a GM. Because at that point, for some, for me, I know if I'm in a room um, and you disagree, I want to know why, because you can learn at that point. And I just think that the teams that aren't successful are the teams that have a bunch of yes men or are making moves for the sake of making moves. Um, and having yes men is arguably next to nepotism, the most dangerous thing in hockey. Yes. And I mean, I, we don't necessarily have too much insight on the, uh, behind the scenes of how things are being run in Edmonton. But if you use history as any indicator and you look back at Peter Shirley's run during Boston, during his time with the Bruins, and you look at that video that's still somehow on YouTube of the Tyler Sagan trade, it's like literally the exact scene from Moneyball where they're just like, comically talking about stuff that makes no sense and everyone just kind of nodding their head and agreeing about this random issue they brought to the forefront as being ultimately a fatal flaw and that's why they have to trade this great player and, and i imagine um at this point of his career especially with the su- past success he has had that peter shirley's not changing his ways and i imagine there's a lot of that going on in edmonton as well even though we haven't actually seen those hilarious videos from his time there yeah and i would say um it's definitely not just happening in edmonton oh, like for sure it's, it's- we the old joke is the 200 hockey men hmm. it definitely exists and i would argue that it exists to a greater degree than hockey twitter thinks yes yeah i would i would uh i would definitely agree with that um rachel let's uh let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor and then we're going to continue this conversation on the other end of things sponsoring today's episode of the hockey pdo cast is SeatGeek. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated, with hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability. It's hard to know who to trust out there. And that's why SeatGeek's the way to go, because they take all the guesswork out of that equation for you by doing all the grunt work. They pull millions of tickets into one place, so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek's going to get you closer to their action for a great value. They're designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before. Like I said, they search the multiple ticket sites and grade every ticket based on value. And by doing so, they help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with full confidence, knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. All that's why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. I've talked a bunch on the show in the past about all the different events I've used SeatGeek for. I've got the app on my phone and... Every time I've used it, whether it's been for basketball games or hockey games or concerts or, or what have you, um, it honestly is such an easy process. It just takes a couple clicks, a couple minutes, and I'm in and out, and it saves me both time and money, and hopefully it'll do the same for you as well. And as my listener, you get one other perk, and that's that you're going to get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase just for listening to today's episode of the Hockeypedia Cast. All you have to do to claim that is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, um, enough about Edmonton. It's uh, 
it's depressing me. Um, let's talk a bit about your time with the Devils and sort of the thing I'm interested about the most, um, rather than actually the like the specifics of it or any planetary transactions or anything like that, is is just the flow of information. And we were just talking about how the good organizations are the ones that have open lines of communication and people constantly striving to answer questions that they might not have even thought before they had answered questions to. And, and just this uh, idea of sort of um, everyone working as one and and I think that relay of information especially from you know someone who was in your position to both the coaching staff but also up top to the decision makers who are ultimately going to be pulling the pulling the trigger on things is a very sort of um, undervalued part of the equation and that just commun- that kind of communication and sort of um, how that information does flow is is something I'm really interested by because we obviously don't get we aren't privy to too much um, of that access because uh, it's obviously all kind of held behind the scenes so we don't get to see a lot of it but obviously you having lived it uh, can speak to it a bit more so I'm really curious about talking about that yeah I would say um, the first thing that's really important to mention and is I know definitely not the case with other organizations is our head like the head coach in New Jersey John Hines is probably the most open-minded hockey person I have met in my entire life um, in terms of being open to new ideas new um, ways of doing things he does want to operate obviously as a coach you have to have your pillars of this is how I want my team to play but if you can bring him suggestions hey you can try this and this is why I think it will be successful or you provide him the data as to why it will be successful he's constantly looking for ways to innovate and I don't think that that's quite the case with most hockey coaches so I know from my perspective um John, we uh, the department provided pre and post game reports. I had my own report that I provided John on the mornings of games, um, and then there were other reports done for different time periods. So that's sort of where the coaching staff is concerned. I worked really closely with the goaltending coach Rolly Melanson, um, just because I have experience working with goaltenders. So it was a natural fit. The fact that I already understood the position and um, it was something that Roley kind of, I guess, gravitated to, um, which I understand. I mean, goalies are creatures of habit, so that Mm. makes a lot of sense. But coaching staff in New Jersey was uh, very trusting of the player information department um, in terms of asking for opinions on lineups or um, optimal player choices. Um, Given everything, um, it was a very, very good relationship in terms of open communication now our department also provides um information and studies on um players and potential players so acquisitions um and that's more for the management side i would say like a a study you would provide to a coaching staff would be for example um who should play where on the power player what's an optimal power play unit for example Hmm. whereas um i know for the Vatnin deal, let's say, because that's been New Jersey's biggest deal in the past probably couple years uh, since Taylor Hall. Um, that like the department looked into pretty much every aspect of the players involved in the trade, potential players involved in the trade. Like you really do your homework, and um, I would say that unless it's a really really quick decision that needs to be made, um, the management there is was very good about. Um, asking us for our opinion on things and asking us to go and do research. Um, or if 
they thought that they had something they would say, what do you think of this? And we would say yes or no. And often um, my opinions didn't necessarily match um, with others in my department and vice versa. So it also created a, uh, an environment of differing sort of devil's advocate. So we're getting all sides of the uh, equation. And that's really good to have because then you get um, informed decisions. You're not just getting a bunch of yes, no. Um, and I think that that's really important. But I would say that they, the organization really does use the department and I think it's it's obviously going to expand with the hiring of the VP of analytics. And I think that'll be it. I think that department will likely get listened to even more um, just because the ownership is so keen on analytics, as you can see what they did with the Philadelphia 76ers. So I think it's going to be a really key part of what New Jersey is doing. But the fact that they're even listening to people like myself who, I mean, I'm not really just an analytics person. Like I, I get the hockey man side of things too, but the fact that they they're willing to listen and be innovative uh, is a great sign, especially where John's concerned because he really drives the everyday ship. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I do want to get into this a bit more, and um, I'm not sure obviously how much you can speak on it, but during your season there last year with with the Devils, um, the team was in a very interesting spot where you know you were making this playoff push and approaching the traded line. I think the devils people didn't probably think that the devils were going to be more of a buyer than a seller but all of a sudden you get to this point where you know you're looking to make the playoffs for the first time since 2012 and you actually have a good competitive team and you're trying to make that final push and then you wind up making a couple trades where you're trading for rentals uh, guys like michael grabner and, and pat maroon and you're giving up picks and prospects and i know like on the analytical side of things uh people like you and i usually look at those trades as not typically being optimal because unless you're really one of the top upper echelon contenders a lot of these guys that come as rentals, um, especially if they're likely to leave as free agents the following summer, um, you don't really want to get into the habit of giving up too many future assets for that because they're not going to move the needle particularly dramatically for you. But obviously, when you're kind of trying to balance those things, and then, like I mentioned, if you're an organization that hasn't made the playoffs in a long time and you're really thirsty and hungry for that and you have to consider all this other stuff, and then obviously you've got... Um, you know your fan base to consider but also probably an ownership group that wants you to make that push if it's feasible at all so like i'm always fascinated by especially with the trade on approaching now uh those kind of external factors and driving forces that help educate and make some of these decisions and become um you know driving forces for it beyond just the pure x's and o's personnel side of things yeah, I would say that um, there was definitely a belief last season that, that we could get into the playoffs. And because we were playing so well, I mean, anything could happen in the playoffs. The fact that we ran into Tampa Bay, I mean, they were just playing such great. <laughs> right. I don't think losing Sammy Vatnin helped at all. In fact, I think that was terrible. Um, my personal belief is that was a dirty hit. Mm. Um, but I think when you're approaching the trade deadline, you have to send a clear message to your players, especially – um, the players who are really important to your culture, like Taylor Hall, um, that we're just as in as you are. Um, and when you think about it, Taylor Hall had never played in the playoffs. And that was sort of one of Ray's things to Taylor was like, we want you to play in the playoffs. So, and this was when Taylor got traded, like well before my time there. Um, and so I think it's it's not just about the fact that the fans want you to be there and ownership definitely wants you to be there because there's playoff revenue associated with that. I think it also um, 
you need to be cognizant of the message that you're sending to your coaches and to your players because it actually has a large impact on the trust factor and the belief factor that the players have in the front office. And that's a really important factor when you're looking at re-signing players. And when you think about it, they're going to have to re-sign Taylor Hall and uh, Sammy Vatnin's up. So it's better to have players that believe or that perhaps know that you are on board and you want to at least give them a shot to say, right. let's see what you can do. Um, I think that's really important, and that's sort of why I think um, New Jersey did what they did at the trade deadline last year. I would hazard to guess that it will not be the same this year. <laughs> yeah, their season's been going slightly differently. Yes, um, and I said this, um, and I've said this, it was unrealistic for anyone to expect that Keith Kincaid was going to have the season he had last year, this year. Right. Um, it's unrealistic for anyone to think that Corey Schneider is going to magically become Pekka Rene because he had the same surgery. It's just not going to happen. Now, did I expect Corey to be better? Yes, I did expect him to be better than he is, but I don't think it's realistic to say that he's going to be Pekka Rene. Hmm. Um, so you need goaltending. And my big thing is like, show me a good coach and I'll show you a good goaltender and show me a fired coach and I'll show you a goaltender with a sub 900 save percentage. Yep. Yes, for sure. Well, I, I am interested in, I mean, obviously that's, uh, you know, a bit overly simplistic, but no, you're, you're right. A hundred percent. That typically is how this stuff works. And it's kind of, uh, it's linked together. And, and I'm really fascinated about, you know, from, from your work, uh, as a video analyst and sort of, uh, the information that's being passed down to the coaching staff and like you were saying for the preparation side of things and sort of x's and o's i feel like that's something and, and i'm curious to see how much of that's going to change when more of this uh player tracking data becomes publicly available and especially with the league dabbling with vr and we can talk a bit more about that in, a, in its own right but i feel like and i've gotten this from listeners sometimes where it's like we'd love to hear you talk more about system stuff and about x's and o's and about stylistic differences in terms of how different teams play and sort of four checks they're utilizing and stuff like that and and power play formations and i'm really fascinated by that stuff but obviously unless you're just watching um intense amounts of video it's probably tougher to get access to that information and really um you know make a discernible plan about it and when you watch a team like the devils for example for the islanders sorry for example this year you know everyone keeps pointing to their elevated pdo and their unsustainable save percentage and obviously now barry trotz is getting a lot of love for uh you know preliminary jack adams voting because of the turnaround for the team and how much better their goals against numbers have been and and it's sort of tough separating those two things and trying to figure out how much of it is that legitimately that heralded barry trotz system that's making the islanders better defensively and how much of it is the goalies uh you know with thomas grice having been there as well last year but obviously robin leonard coming in and and being ridiculously good this year how much of it is simply those two guys just making the saves for him and making the coaching staff and the defensive team around them look that much better yeah i would say um definitely sort of behind the scenes have access to a lot more data than um is discernible publicly. Um, and one of those that Andrew Berkshire is actually associated with is sport logic. Um, I don't have access to it now and it's driving me a little bit crazy because it's, it's hard to do my research without everything. Like they track about 3000 data points per game. And when you think about that, 
everything is broken down to the most minute things. And that's really important for someone like me who, who does research and who provides information to the coaching staff, because there are statistics on sport logic that would tell you that, um, perhaps this Islanders team is, is more sustainable than the public data would tell you. Um, now I would point goaltending wise to their new goaltending coach, Pero Greco. Um, he was the Marley's goaltending coach for the past few years. And, and Garrett Sparks has actually spoken very highly of him, but, um, Robin Leonard, I believe actually came out and said that he's done some work with Pero Greco and, and it's, uh, it's really helped him. So I think that the goaltending will regress a little bit. Absolutely. But I don't think that it will regress to the point where everyone thought that they were going to be a, a bottom five team this year based on some of the signings and moves they made in the off season. Um, I think the Barzell improvement and him getting sort of tougher opposition was seen coming. And I think he's handled that really well. I think Anders Lee is having a great season. So there's, there's a lot of data sort of behind the scenes <laughs> that um, would tell you that the Islanders, for example, are maybe a little bit more sustainable than, than people think. And I know there's a lot of other um, data tracking that teams use. Um, and I know that sport logic actually is, is piloting their player tracking cameras in certain NHL rinks based on speaking to a few people. And I, I wouldn't be shocked to see sport logic in the NHL come to some type of player tracking deal where um, sport logic would be used sort of to track uh, players and, and GPS type of thing. I know probably the biggest issue would be the the line changes just because they happen so quickly, right. but that doesn't require a CBA agreement. It's only if you ask players to wear a chip, does it sort of get ugly with the CBA? Because as long as they're not wearing anything, you can take whatever information you want, which is why they don't have to ask the players for the puck technology or anything like that. Well, um, yeah, I'm obviously that's kind of been a it's been a big talking point in league circles recently, especially with uh, with the players agreeing and, and the league testing out over a couple of games in in Vegas recently. And um, I'm sure a lot of people by now have seen that cool video of the of the, uh, the VR where you can really put yourself into the um, into the shoes, I guess, the skates of the player and, and sort of see what they're seeing out on the ice and experience it for yourself. And yeah, we're obviously headed towards this uh, new way to soak up a lot of this information and digest the game. And I think I've talked about in the show before, but I think especially when some of this information becomes publicly released, we're going to test a lot of it and we're going to find out that some stuff's not maybe as valuable as we thought and some other things are and we're going to make some mistakes along the way. But I'm very, and I don't think necessarily this player tracking, I think this is a misconception is going to suddenly provide us with all the answers and be this kind of one-stop shop antidote to everything. Like I think there's still going to be a lot of things we don't know and that's what makes it exciting. But I, you having had access to it for uh, your time with the Devils, obviously, and it, I think you can speak to it better than I can. I, I've gotten a bit of a glimpse with it, and, and Andrew has shown me some of the stuff. But yeah, I mean, just in terms of like the information they have in the neutral zone is uh, is so revelatory and so remarkable, and, and would be so cool to be able to digest on a daily basis when it is publicly available, assuming that it eventually is one day. Yeah, I would say um, a few things. One, when this information, part of the reason I think that the CBA will fight the NHL on, on player tracking is because if this gets used in contract negotiations, this could potentially be either very good for the team or very good for the player. Um, but it also has potential to be very bad for the player. 
Um, I know some teams have actually asked their players to wear the, the catapult technology. Um, and that's sort of a cross sport tactic, which I think we'll get into later with the whole inefficiencies thing. But um, catapult, essentially, you you can ask your players to wear them. They don't have to wear them. But let's face it, if 17 of the guys agree, all of them are going to end up wearing it. And you can use it to track heart rate. You can use it as a GPS. And it populates live into the system. And so that can help with um, determining maintenance days or if a player is playing outside of sort of his maximum output. So I think being in Toronto, the perfect example is uh, Ron Hainsey. If he wears this catapult technology, and um, let's not even say that it's public, but let's say that the Leafs can now look at it and say, okay, he's playing based on his GPS tracking and his heart rate and his breathing output, He he's playing sort of out of or above what he's supposed to be, right. then maybe he gets an extra maintenance day. Or maybe you tell Mike that. Is, is the contract negotiations as well as um, the player maintenance. But with regard to sport logic, I think the release of that much information is potentially very dangerous. Um Now, I think it's dangerous not only for the uneducated sort of analytical fan, but I think it's also dangerous for the people who put perhaps too much stock in analytics because there's just so many statistics available and and sortable on the SportLogic interface that you can pigeonhole or you can make a player look good or bad depending on what stats you cherry pick. And I know this because... I've seen it done. Um, and I think that's potentially very dangerous. Now, if sport logic decides they're only going to make certain statistics available um, that are easily understandable and easily unilaterally applied, I think that could benefit. But allowing all of that statistical information to be public, I, I actually think is, is very dangerous. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's obviously a, a distinction to be made between descriptive and predictive stuff, right? Like, I think there's um, a way that we'll be able to relay information to viewers at home on bro- on game broadcasts that, you know, spruce up that viewing experience and provide you with interesting stuff like how fast the guy's skating or how hard he's shooting or sort of you know, having live trackers of who's on the ice at all times, but I don't know necessarily what, you know, for, for you and I, what the utility is of that or, or what that actually tells us about a player's value moving forward. But there's, that's to say there's kind of two sides of that coin, right? Where it's not necessarily all about that. And there's also a certain element to um, improving the broadcast since I know that we all constantly rail on them and sort of the information they're providing. And there's an avenue towards improving that as well using this information. Yeah, like I would say, um, the one thing that really comes to mind is um, zone exits slash entries. And then something that I, I really think will get skewed big time if it's released publicly is the stat called passes to the slot. Yeah. Um, I think that if that gets released publicly, it could potentially be very dangerous because there's, there's a certain portion of hockey Twitter that sees a stat and goes, well, it's got to be this end of story, goodbye, as opposed to looking at the entire scope. Like, they get very myopic, and I think that that stat in particular, will it'll end up, the result will end up being, well, this player should play here on the power play because they have more passes to the slot, or this player should 
not play because they don't create scoring chances because of X, Y, Z. Um, now I think that the general public would benefit from sport logic releasing its entry and exit data, because I think that tells a much better story than some of the stuff that's publicly available. So I think there's a lot to learn from that perspective and it might change some people's opinions on, on particularly some of the defensemen that hockey Twitter likes to argue about. Um, and even some of the forwards, but I, I just don't think that unilaterally releasing it is necessarily a good idea. Now for broadcasts, I think it was the Nashville broadcast. I want to say that started talking about, um, goals for percentage and shots for percentage. And, and that's great. Or even talking about relative to team stats, like if they could do that or talk about uh, quality of competition, that's enough sort of for the stats. I know TSN in Canada has started to, to, um, to show scoring chances from the house, right. which is that like home plate area. So like yeah. that's a positive step in the right direction, but you ha- with the same token, you have to, stop discussing things like combined plus minus Hmm. or a face-off that happens 35 seconds earlier. Like are face-offs important? Absolutely. Are they important 35 seconds later? No. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you, especially like you get to uh, one of the common pushbacks and and I've experienced it myself having been on some of the Canucks broadcasts when I was with Sportsnet was there is a kind of limit logistically of how much time you have to talk about something. So, you know, we probably shouldn't use that time on stuff that's ultimately irrelevant and we could kind of uh, spread that out in a better, more efficient way. But yeah, you're right. I think the uh, there's some really good broadcasts out there and that Nashville, Nashville one you mentioned uh, on Fox Sports Tennessee is done a really good job there color commentators former goalies um chris mason and he's reached out to me a number of times and asked about certain things and he clearly wants to learn and and sprinkle that into the analysis and i'm all for that and i think there's various other ones as well that have done a really good job so um yeah the more of that the better yeah i would say like i've even had so the msg broadcast in new jersey is steve cangelosi danico and then actually bryce salvador mm-hmm. um between the benches right Yeah, exactly. And um, Bryce has come to me on a number of occasions. And even now that I'm gone and asked me, hey, how do I incorporate this into the broadcast? Or how would you explain this to someone that doesn't necessarily understand it? Because I've explained the statistics to him. And as a former professional defenseman, he understands them. But Keith sitting on the couch probably doesn't understand them to the same extent that Bryce Salvador understands them to. So it's more about Bryce trying to educate the New Jersey fans who are calling for John Hines head, but they don't necessarily realize that John's actually got this team going in a very good direction. And these are the signs. Like you can't just be looking at plus minus at this point. Hmm. Right. So come on, Keith, get it together. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's broadcasters like that who are actually making an effort to reach out to the people like you and I, or um, use natural statric on their broadcast because you're educating forward and to where the game is going because if you don't as a fan understand what your coach is looking at then you don't understand how he's coaching and that's where the disconnect is and that's where everyone gets so mad yeah um okay before we get out of here we did talk a bit about marketing efficiencies and and we've sort of alluded to some of it and obviously um 
you know, there's certain things that you probably could have gotten away with a handful of years ago that some teams have at least, for the most part, wised up to now. But, I mean, if the Nito Niederreiter trade and is any indication, and we've seen others in the recent past, there's probably still um, avenues to buy low on players and target certain things. Like, what are you, what are you looking at and what are sort of um, things that having worked with the Devils and spent, spending some time there, um, you got might have gotten surprising pushback to or, or, or disagreements with that other people might be surprised about? I would say um, I have three sort of identified inefficiencies that now that I actually have time, I'll be researching sort of on my own and, and working with some some junior coaches to sort of pilot this. Um, the first one is cross-sport tactics. So how do you apply things from different sports to hockey to sort of get creative? Um, so for me, um, things like how do you, can, is there a way you can have a Hail Mary version of a pass in hockey? So like the stretch pass, but you don't use the stretch pass. Like you would use the stretch pass to create a breakaway about as often as you would throw a Hail Mary. Like you wouldn't use it very often. Another thing is rest days. And I know the NBA is, is very good with this. You look at Kawhi Leonard and even, um, Tim Duncan in the later part of his career, teams resting players in order to keep them at their peak performance, I think is potentially something that the NHL really needs to look at, especially like these players are playing 82 games. It's a very condensed schedule now with the bye week and the all-star break. Um, It's a really long season. So I think that the team that goes into the playoffs, the most rested probably has um, an advantage when it comes to injuries as well as burning out and then there's an inherent weak point such as um, playing in the goalie blind spots to create offense um, that I think sort of could be exploited and it's something I'm looking into but those are sort of the three that I've identified but I think the cross-board tactics and the rest days as well as buying low on players specifically um, smaller skilled players is uh, definitely they're they're some of hockey's biggest inefficiencies. I'm also a fan of the offer sheet. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that it's being presented quite correctly right now. I think people are so focused on what's going on in Toronto that they don't really realize that Tampa's probably going to have some issues with Braden Point. And I would argue that he's potentially a better all-around player than Mitch Marner, or it is at least a discussion. Um... So I think the offer sheet is a huge market inefficiency that that people don't use. And maybe not for the star players, but think about offer sheeting somebody like Kasperi Kapanen. You probably don't need to pay him $5 million, which means if you give up a first and a third, I believe it is, you can get Kasperi Kapanen. Well, I would take a guaranteed player over two draft picks any day of the week. And so those are sort of the market inefficiencies that I'm seeing and, and sort of looking into. Um, well, in terms of the offer sheets, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's obviously very tantalizing and looking ahead, especially to this summer, there's a lot of uh, fascinating situations to follow. I just, at this point, I need to see one before I believe that it's actually going to happen. Like we've, you know, we've gotten to this point where, especially a couple of years ago, the, uh, with Leon Dreisaitl and the Oilers where like Peter Shirley came out and said, like, he was basically like threatening other teams, like don't even bother 
signing him to an offer sheet because we'll just match regardless it's like if you're another team why wouldn't you as a competitive advantage raise the price if they're clearly going to do so anyways and try and force their hands and potentially make them make some more uh, critical financial decisions down the road so the fact that we haven't really seen in the past couple years even though there's been countless examples of guys that were ripe for the taking there um makes me believe that we're probably not going to see it but you know this year in particular feels like there's probably some more dire situations uh, as you mentioned with toronto and, and tampa bay so that'll be something to follow and the uh the rest one is something that's near and dear to my heart i mean you know especially with veterans who have so many miles in them like azina ochara or joe thornton or or some of the other guys around the league um there's no reason why they should be playing 80 82 games like I understand that it's got a hockey culture and bravado that, you know, you play as often as you can and you, you tough it out through injuries and wear and tear. But if you're the ultimate end goal is to make it far in the playoffs and win the Stanley cup, then you should be using the regular season as, um, sort of a, a runaway to set yourself up most optimally for that. And I think that hopefully as teams are embracing sports science more and we're learning more about the human body and how fatigue affects performance, we'll see more of that. But yeah, it, with certain stuff like that, it does really feel like hockey is so far behind the times and a, a bit archaic still. Well, think about it from this perspective. And with hockey, the hockey men like to poke fun at uh, soccer players or basketball players for sitting out uh, for minor injuries or um, taking rest days in Kawhi Leonard's example. But is it really all that smart to be playing with a punctured lung and a broken rib? Because I would argue that the rest day is probably <laughs> less dumb than playing with a punctured lung. Yeah. Right? I've... So it's it's things like that. Like, we don't need this bravado. Do you want to have bravado or do you want to win a cup? Because I would rather win a cup. But, I mean, we have this old adage of like, oh, no, we got to tough it out because we're hockey players. Well, if someone told you, like, hey, Zdeno, or hey, Ron, or hey, Patrick Marlowe, hey, Shea Weber, if you don't play the second half of a back-to-back, or Alex Ovechkin, perfect example, you don't go to the All-Star game, now you have a week off, and you can take another run of the cup, or you play 82 games and you get hurt in the first round and the team's eliminated, what do you think is the smarter option? Right, but there's this whole thing of I've got to tough it out, and I just, I don't see why it needs to be that way. I think that coaches and general managers need to say, they need to put their foot down and say, listen, you're not playing. Like for Tampa, for example, they're in the playoffs. Like they could lose probably 20 of their final, however many games they have left. They'd still make the playoffs. I'd be resting Stamkos. I'd be resting Kucherov. I'd be resting I'd not be playing Vasilevsky all that much down the stretch. Like, obviously, you want him to stay sharp, but he wouldn't be playing on any back-to-backs. He wouldn't be playing three and fours. None of that. So I think that's sort of where teams need to capitalize. This whole thing of goalies playing 65, 70 games is ridiculous. Like, it's not necessary. Well, I would say I think, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think, you know, to the credit, of uh of nhl teams and it's been a long time coming but it feels like for the most part like there generally has been uh an acceptance or an appreciation of the fact that you know it's their goalies are still probably playing too much like i think 65 and and above is is still too much but 
we're definitely not seeing the days anymore of 70, 75 games like me, Kiprasov and Marty Bordeaux were playing. And right. we're, we're seeing all these stats where it's like, you know, all, all the teams that have made uh, long playoff runs and cup runs, their goalies were playing 40, 45, 50 games during the regular season. And I don't think that's any fluke or any mistake. And I think teams have accepted it, but I understand it's kind of apples and oranges in terms of workload and how fatigue works um, playing goaltending as opposed to being a forward, for example. But I do look forward to the to the day where it is more of an accepted thing that forwards and defensemen will not be having to play the full 82 games because it just doesn't make sense um, if your end goal really is to make the playoffs and make a cup run. Exactly. And I think it's 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 obviously different for players like New Jersey, for example, they're fighting down the stretch to make the right. playoffs. You're obviously not sitting Taylor Hall at any point during that stretch, but you have teams this year, Tampa, Toronto, um, eventually the West will sort of sort itself out. I think the Metro will as well. There's nothing inherently wrong with going to players like Sidney Crosby, Nikita Kucherov, unless they're in a scoring race of some type, then I sort of understand. Um, but players who have had history of injury or are sort of getting old, there's, there's nothing wrong with going to a Patrick Marlowe or a Ron Hainsey and saying, Hey, like you're not playing tonight because your tracking unit, or we think that your output has sort of gone down and we think that you need to take a, br- a break so that you're ready to go for the playoffs. And that's where I think player tracking will have its most positive impact is that it will allow teams to say, okay, this player's really sort of come down, whether it's they're coming back from injury or they're just tired. Um, and I think it will actually allow for a lot of injury avoidance and it'll allow players to stay more fresh. There's nothing wrong with, with a player being told he's got to sit down because the team's already firmly in the playoffs and there's no sense in him playing. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that uh, that biometric data is going to be a, a game changer, even though it's not publicly available, just for the teams to have access to it and be able to sort of indicate when a guy's performance is, is deteriorating a bit and whether it's fatigue-related or what's going on there and, and sort of uh, taking a bigger picture view of this stuff and keeping the end goal in mind. Uh, Rachel, plug some stuff. What I guess I guess that question doesn't really apply to you. What are you working on? I guess you were mentioning a bit that you're going to be working with some with some junior stuff, but uh, what's uh, what's on the agenda for you? I would say um, not a whole lot. Um, I'm still kind of, so in New Jersey, I pitched a, a mental health awareness night game. So that's happening February 5th. So that was separate from all of my job. Um, it's completely unbeknownst to the hockey operations staff. It was It's just mental health. Some, that's something that's really near and dear to me, and it's something I've written about publicly and spoken about publicly. Um so I'm still sort of not really involved, but like keeping an eye on it. Um, and that's sort of my focus, I guess, right now. But I will be doing um, my own research, looking into some of the inefficiencies that we discussed tonight. So the crossboard tactics and the rest days and creating tactics that uh, take advantage of inherent weak points. Um, but other than that, um, and going to Germany in, in February where I'll be sort of off the grid for a bit. Uh, I'm just taking a break, um, and we'll see what's next. But whether it's public work or I'm back with the team, um, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I'm sick, looking forward to seeing what the next chapter is, and I'm glad we finally, um, after a long wait, got to do this. And, um, yeah, enjoy that break, and uh, hopefully we can get you back on and discuss some of this other big-picture stuff down the road as well. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a blast. All right, talk to you, Rachel. 
Popovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypediocast. Mm-hmm.